So our guest speaker, as I mentioned before, is Chuck Hess, and uh, he's been here before other times, and uh, I just want to welcome you today to come in and give him the word, God's word through you to us. They, uh, Chuck is, uh, if you remember right, if you remember correctly from years past, he'd come, he was a business owner that helped with the church and did some preaching, and uh, um, he and Kevin met each other, I think it was in a coffee shop, wasn't it? And it turned out you both go to Denver Seminary, and well, now he's an associate pastor full-time at uh, the Bridge Church over in Lakewood. So, Chuck, come on up. I'd like to welcome you, say thank you very much, and we look forward to hearing what God has to say through you. Cool. Thanks, Phil. Appreciate it, man. You're welcome. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. So, today is Pentecost Sunday, and if you're not uh, used to the liturgical calendar, maybe you're like, what's Pentecost Sunday? What's the big deal? Who cares? Um, Well, Pentecost was the day that, if you will, the church was born. Um, And we're going to read through a lot of passages today, so if you have a Bible, uh, get it ready, because we're going to go through a lot of scripture today. I figure if I just let the Bible talk, then my sermon's not so bad, because then the Bible does the talking and not me. But we're going to read about this in Acts chapter 2. So... Uh, Jesus had just ascended to heaven, which is another thing we don't talk about very much as a church, I think. It's kind of funny. We talk about his death and resurrection, but we forget that he ascended in bodily form, like he is physically ascended into heaven, which is kind of, kind of crazy to think about. Uh, but he said, wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power on high, and we're going to pick it up here in Acts chapter 2 in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, here you go, Pentecost was... Uh, 40 days um, after the Passover, and it was the celebration of the harvest. So it was a big deal. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, the sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these people, or aren't all these who are here speaking Galileans? How then is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, the visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs, we hear them speaking the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? I think that's an understatement. They'd be a little bit uh, blown away by this. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've just had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the 11. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And then he goes through and explains, uh, starting from the book of Joel, what this all means. And if you will, he kind of gives the very, very first gospel sermon and he makes it very clear 
that it was not just the Jews in power, like Caiaphas and, and the various Pharisees and priests, but it was all of them that put Jesus on the cross. And it was not just the Romans. It was not just Pontius Pilate. It was every single one of us, every single one of them, everybody put Jesus on the cross. So he says in verse, uh, verse 36, <clears throat> Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will, our, uh, the, the Lord our God will call. See, that's us. We're that all who are far off, many generations down the line. We are the inheritance of what happened on the day of Pentecost. And we're going to talk a little bit about this today. What happened? What was this tongues of fire thing? What, how did this change the way that God was ruling in the world through his people uh, on this day of Pentecost? It was a pretty radical time. So we're going to skip here to First uh, Peter chapter 2 and read a little passage that maybe you've read before and just kind of glanced over it, didn't think much of it. But this is significant. <clears throat> 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, a lot of that passage we get, but there's one little piece in there that I don't think we think much about it. It's the royal priesthood. What on earth is that? And how are we priests? Well, first of all, I want to talk about something real quick. So imagine a courtroom scene where, you know, I don't know, pick your favorite TV show where there's a, a, a famous prosecutor and defendant and they're, you know, they're battling it out and objection, your honor, all those classic, right, uh, scenes. But the whole thing's done, the whole court case is settled, and the, there's a person who stands accused of a serious crime, the evidence is presented, the arguments are made, and after careful uh, consideration, the verdict is announced, not guilty, right? The defendant is declared innocent and released from the shackles of guilt and condemnation. The weight of the accusation is lifted. Imagine what that would feel like. His freedom is now granted. Now, picture this person stepping out of the courtroom, breathing in the fresh air of newfound freedom. The world is their oyster, and they have been given a second chance at life. Yet, instead of embracing this new beginning with gratitude and purpose, they choose to do nothing. Maybe they just sit and watch TV for the rest of their life. I don't know. Days turn to weeks, weeks turn to months. They simply drift through life without any sense of direction or responsibility. We, sometimes we hear about people who have uh, been given, they're sitting on death row, right? They've been given capital punishment as the, the ultimate punishment. And yet there's some more evidence comes up. Maybe they've been in prison for 20 years and then they find that they're innocent 
and they're released. Imagine if they just did nothing with that newfound freedom. You know, this illustration reminds us of a sobering reality that can occur even in our spiritual journey. It certainly has happened to me. Where through God's grace and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we have been declared not guilty of our sins. Amen? But the charges against us, and the charges against us have been dropped because we should have died in, in place of what Jesus did it instead. And we've been given this freedom. Our chains, we've been uh, set free from the chains of condemnation. And however, our response to this incredible gift of salvation is, is crucial. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. This is going to be the, the passage we're going to camp out on today, but we're going to dance around quite a bit, like I said, and look at several passages. But let's go to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> and if you read the bulletin, it was, it was uh, in there, but we're going to read it again. Verse 18, Paul tells the Roman church, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning and the pain, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. What hopes for what they already have? <clears throat> but if we have hope, but, sorry, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he pre also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Amen and amen. But how many of us, I certainly took a long time, I read this passage many, many times in my life, and I'm like, well, that sounds great. What on earth is Paul talking about? A lot of it sounds cool, it sounds heavenly, like, cool, when we die, we get to go and be shiny with God or something. Um, that we, uses the word glory, glorified quite a bit. Um, we hear about things like classic passages, like, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those, uh, those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But, but what is this? What is the purpose? And what have I been called to? Well, we're going to dig in today. Once again, this goes all the way back to Pentecost. These people were empowered with the Holy Spirit to do something different something great. But it's not so different 
from what was from what we were called to be as humans from the very beginning. So we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1, which Lydia read earlier, but we're going to camp out on this for a second. I'm going to leave you guys in tension and, and, uh, for a long time before we get to the point. We've got to do some, some digging, some, some uh, background work to get to the point here. So stay buckled up. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. This is a really, really pivotal passage. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over every living creature that moves along the ground. So this is interesting because this is day six. We realized that we needed the other five days before we could even arrive, before we could even exist. Because if you haven't noticed, we're kind of weak as far as nature's concerned, right? We kind of have soft flesh, right? We don't run very fast. Uh, you know, none of us, as far as I know, have feathers that can like warm us during the winter. Um, right? We're kind of, we're reliant on the rest of creation to exist, right? The plants, the animals, the everything. We need the rest of the world to exist. We're not very good at surviving. We just aren't. That's why we're so communal. We have to like have buildings and clothes and everything else to survive. But what's unique, though, is God creates human. Then he says, you know what? We're going to create mankind in our image, in our image, which is the only creature that gets that distinction. And uh, not to spend too long on this, but this is interesting. In verse 27, it says, so God created mankind. That word in the Hebrew is Adam or Adam. God created mankind, Adam, in his own image, and he means Adam as in wholeness of humanity, mankind. And it says, and in the image of God, he created, and actually in the Hebrew, it's in the singular, him. But he means all of us. And then it says male and female, he created them, plural. So it's almost that we need each other to somehow exist and fulfill this mandate of, of living within the image of God. But once again, what on earth does that mean? Well, let's, let's look at it. So it says, God blessed them, and he said to them, do what? Be fruitful and increase, fill the earth, and subdue it. So our role, our calling as humanity is to rule and reign over all of creation. So God spent all this time making creation, and he said it was good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he creates humans and says it's very good, and then it says, cool, now go rule and reign over it. And then you turn the page, chapter 3, whoops, didn't go so well. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were told not to eat from. And they were banished from the other tree that they were supposed to eat from, the tree of life. So this is the state that we all exist in now, is this, if you will, fallen, fallen world. But ultimately, we were called to rule and reign over creation as God's 
image bearers. We can think of the image of God as sort of a status. We've been given a status, some, some calling, like, uh, you know, your job now is to rule and reign, and that's your status, that's your calling. We can think of the image of God as that. So let's go to Romans chapter 1. So I want you guys to remember, what are they supposed to rule over? The birds of the air, the fish of the sea, animals of the land. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. So we know what happens in Genesis 3. Let's look at Romans 1. So Romans 1 is really interesting because this is Paul reflecting on how messed up the world really is. And I think this is important because sometimes, sometimes there's this notion that sin is sort of a, like a psychological disorder or that it's like um, uh, an error that we just need to correct and then somehow society will become better. No, sin is really deep and sin is very wicked. Let's look here in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says, For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory, keep that in mind, exchanged the glory, we're going to talk about that for a second, of the immortal God for images, we talked about the image of God, now they've exchanged this glory for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So we see here now, it's like reverse creation. God says, I've created you as image bearers of me. You are the image of God. Therefore, go and rule over creation. Then we see the fall and the wickedness of the world, and now it's reverse. Now what do we see? They create images, and they worship the creation they worship the birds of the sky, the, the uh, fish of the sea, the animals, and, and that's crooked. It's backwards from what God intended it to be. Do you see what I mean? So this is reverse creation. Now, I want you I want to go back to that the, um, one verse. <clears throat> In verse 23, it says, They exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images. Now, just to be clear, the they is us, Okay. We, in our nature, are this way. We are prone to sin. We are prone to turn creation on itself and worship creation rather than the creator. So keep that in mind. Don't be like those guys and I'm awesome. No, no, no. We all fall into the the bucket of sin. We all are in that same boat, right? But it's interesting because it says something about exchanging glory. You know, we exchange money, right? I want to give Preston five bucks, and then he'll give me a popsicle. I don't know. That's an exchange, right? You have to have something to exchange it. If I just give him five bucks, and he doesn't have a popsicle to give me, well, then I've just given him something. There's no exchange going on. So if there's an exchange, that means we have it in the first place. So we somehow, and we're going to dig into this, have glory. 
We're going to dig into that. We somehow have glory, but we've exchanged it. We've flipped the script. What does this mean? Well, let's go to Psalm chapter 8. This is really, really fun. So this is a Psalm of David. And David is reflecting on humanity while he's also praising God. This is really interesting. So it starts out, uh, I'm going to read verse 1 and then we'll, we'll dig into this here. It says, Lord, our Lord, and we've probably heard this psalm a million times. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory, this is the word we're going to camp out on, glory, in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them. I mean, it's true. Think about it. You look at, you look at some of these images from the James Webb telescope. Have you guys seen any of these, this new telescope they have out there? And these just amazing images, they're looking deep, deep, deep into the universe as far as they can go back. And it's just vast. And then you think about who we are, we're like specks of dust on a speck of dust in a cloud of dust on a speck of I mean, just we're infinitesimally small. And David is reflecting on this. He's like, why do you even care about us? We're so messed up and the universe is so vast. Why do you even care about us? In verse 7, David says, you have made them, humans, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You've crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds, wild animals of the wild, birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, that swim along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Do you see the same pattern? The birds of the sea or sorry, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the animals that walk along the ground. These are what we've been called to rule and reign over, all of creation. But he says here in verse five, this is really key. And you crowned them with glory and honor and you made them, verse six, rulers over the works of your hand. This is that rule and reign, that calling that was way back in Genesis one. And you've put everything under their feet. This is royal, kingly language. Okay? When, when they would say, put them under your feet, there was, there's a few different images. So when a, a king in ancient times would conquer another king, sometimes they would make the king kneel uh, in, before the throne, and the king would take a seat on the throne and then put his, his foot on their, on their back as like, I rule over you now. Another thing that they would do is they would have this footrest and they would carve the names of the kings that they had conquered. And they'd put their foot on there saying, I rule over this now. So when, Paul, when, when uh, David is saying, you put everything under their feet, that means that we are supposed to rule and reign over all of creation. But once again, David's reflecting on, but we're so messed up. Why do you even care? Well, we're going we're gonna to get there. Let's go to, back to Romans chapter 8. Let's go back there. <clears throat> So, you know, um, we don't have time to go over this, but I'm just going to throw this out there, and you can feel free to look this up later if you'd like. Um, ultimately, what 
the image of God was supposed to do, remember I talked about being a status for Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve were supposed to rule and reign as image bearers. And the image bearers were both royal, like they were king and queen over creation. They were also supposed to be priests. Priests are supposed to be mediators between uh, heaven and earth, heaven and earth, right? So they were supposed to rule and reign, be priests. So they were royal priests in the Garden of Eden. But that got messed up. So then later, when God pulls the Israelites out of Egypt, they're at the foot of, the, of Mount Sinai, and God says, I want you guys all to be a nation of priests. But then they see all the fire from the, the mountain, and they're a little freaked out. They're like, I don't know. I don't know if we want to do this. We're just going to send this Moses guy up, and you can work through him. And they do. Moses goes up. He hears God. Uh, gets the Ten Commandments and all that stuff, and they go down. He goes down from the mountain, and what do they find? They're worshiping a golden calf. Once again, reverse creation. They messed it up again. Because they're not fulfilling their calling of being royal priests to rule and reign over creation. And they rejected that. Instead, they'd rather worship a golden calf. So Moses goes back up, and, and he sort of offers himself on behalf of Israel. Because God says, what does God say in Exodus? He says, out of the way, Moses, I'm going to nuke Israel, and we're going to start over through you. And Moses goes, no, 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 just take me on behalf of Israel. He is that royal priest who is offering himself. Then fast forward. Well, actually, let's go backwards even before that. Abraham goes and offers Isaac in a way a priest would to bring peace and shalom over all creation. Then we got Moses. If you fast forward, David we know that Jesus is in the Davidic line. David was supposed to be this royal priest, but he messed up too. We see throughout history, there's a bunch of kings and, and different figures in Israel's history that were supposed to do this thing. They were supposed to rule and reign over creation the way we we're supposed to do it as royal priests, but they messed up time and time and time again. What did we actually need? We needed somebody who wasn't just simply created in the image of God, but somebody who was the image of God, and that is Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Jesus is the ultimate royal priest who offers himself as a sacrifice so that we can commune with God. To be a perfect, to be a mediator, to bring that perfect union between heaven and earth again. And then we are called to live in that same way. But what does that mean? Does it mean we just simply uh, have faith, repent, we, we convert, we, we you know, say our prayer, amen, and then we just sort of exist, and now we live being justified and having our sins forgiven, but that's it? We just continue to coast through life? Kind of like that courtroom figure who was freed from, uh, from his guilty verdict, and then he just drifted. Is that what we're supposed to do? I think not. And I think it's all wrapped up here in Romans chapter 8. What is our calling? So in verse 17, we already read this in verse 18, but the context is he says, uh, and now if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we also may share in his 
glory. So there's that word again, glory. We've been crowned with honor and glory. We've been given glory to rule and reign over the earth. And this is it. How do we do it? It's through suffering. Let's, let's dig in a little bit more here. So we, we read about this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The glory will somehow be revealed in us throughout all creation. It says, for creation, all of creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God, for us, to be revealed in our fullness. For the creation was subjected to frustration, da da da, da right? And so it's, it's wanted to be liberated from this curse that happened in Genesis 3. And then we learn about the, the three different groanings, that creation is groaning. We know that we groan inwardly, and that the Spirit groans on behalf of us to offer our own prayers that we don't quite even understand how to pray on behalf of us to God. And in verse 26, in the same way, uh, the Spirit who helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And then we hear, pick it up here in verse 28. And I want, you, I want to put a different spin on this verse, and I think uh, Pastor Kevin's going to be talking about this next week too, which is, will be interesting. It says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You know, you've probably seen all the cards at Mardell and, and Hobby Lobby or whatever of these, this classic verse that's, that's pasted out there. Like, God is, God is for us. You know, we're, we're, everything's great. You know, God will work through the good. Like, it's some sort of assurance that they, everything's going to work out. But this is actually a communal call. Let's read it within that, with that mind. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? To rule and reign over all creation. This is a communal call for us to redeem creation along with God. This is our calling. Let's keep going. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's another one of those key, key words, the pattern there image. But why doesn't it say conform to the image of God? Why doesn't it say conform to the image of Christ? Why does it say conform to the image of his son? Well, I think Paul is putting a spin on the words here. He's saying, of course, it's reflecting back to Jesus. We're conformed to be uh, in the image of, of Jesus, but it's also in the image of his son as in Adam. Now Jesus is the second Adam. He's the way that Adam was supposed to live, ruling, reigning in creation without the fall. This is what this means. That he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, that's us, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, amen, and those he justified, he also glorified. And I want to camp out on this. This is really, really interesting. God has given us not all of his glory, but some of his glory. A lot of times we can think that glory is just something we attain after we die in eternity and somehow we'll, I don't know, glow or be shiny. But there's so much more to glory. It is that calling for us to rule and reign over creation the way it was intended to be. That 
is living within the glory that God has bestowed on us. So then how do we do this? Well, let's go back. It's through our sharing in Jesus' sufferings, in the sufferings that we, too, will have. Um, let's go over to, uh, let's see, where did I write it down? Yeah, Philippians 3. I think this is an amazing passage. Philippians 3. In verse 10. <clears throat> Paul says, and he's just, this is a powerful passage. He says, I want to know Christ. Amen. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in what? His sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. When we participate in Christ's sufferings, we are ruling, ruling and reigning with Christ in this broken world and bringing creation back into full redemption with God. And how do we do that? Through our sufferings. I don't know everybody in this room, but I know for a fact that everybody in this room has undergone sufferings and is probably suffering even right now. Suffering is key to our rule and reign in the creation. This is why God has redeemed us. God redeemed us. God justifies through the works on the cross so that we can do these things, so that we can bring redemption back to creation. It is what we do as heirs with Christ. But one of the things that comes up when people talk about this or think about this is they think, well, that sounds like works-based salvation. That sounds like you're trying to earn your salvation. No, not at all. We actually were saved not through our works, but through Christ's works, through God's predestination of us so that we can do these things. You know, there's a, a great author you may have read, Dallas Willard. He wrote a book called Divine Conspiracy. And in that book, he says, Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. If we do things thinking we are somehow earning our salvation or somehow attaining good favor with God, that's when we're messed up. But if instead we're motivated by our salvation to do the great things that God has called us to do from the very beginning as royal priests, that is exactly what God has created us for. And that is exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost. And this is Pentecost Sunday after all. They were all called back into the royal priesthood to rule and reign in the world. And how did they do that? Through suffering. Through embracing the poor, the weak. They themselves were persecuted. They tried to bring shalom, to bring peace back into the world by living as Christians in the broken world. And all you have to do is look at church history to see how much suffering occurred because of that. And we are called to that same kind of life. So lean into your suffering. We have a role here and now to rule and reign. And I think this is why it's uh, important to develop uh, what some have called confessional communi communities. You need a community 
of people like the church, but even smaller. Maybe you have a Bible study group or some sort of discipleship group that you get together with where you're confessional. And I don't mean just in confessing of sin, but talking about life, talking about the sufferings that you are going through and the sufferings that you are going through with somebody else. And in this way, we can collectively rule and reign on this earth by embracing the sufferings of the world because there are plenty of sufferings. If you're short on suffering, go find somebody who is. I'm sure you can find somebody. It's very, very easy to do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great uh, German theologian who was part of what they called the confessional church uh, who fought against Nazi Germany, he wrote a book called Life Together. If you've never read it, I highly recommend it. It's one of the best books ever written. But he said, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. That's it. If you love the idea of community and you try and create community, you're going to kill it. But if you love your brother, there you go. That's all you got to do. That's all you got to do. So what are some practicals here? Well, I think we think of today's world, a 24-hour news cycle. Don't spend more time being conformed by cable news or by whatever uh, craziness is out there than you are by the scriptures or by the church, by your own confessional communities. Let God form you more than the things of the world. And I think this is such an important calling as the church. And you guys here at Peace, you know, I think about you guys and pray often. I've been praying for Nathan for a long time. Um, this is what it means to rule and reign in this world. Like what Nathan's going through, for instance, is through this suffering, somehow he is attaining to the resurrection. It does not make sense to us all the time. But somehow we attain to the resurrection. We are called as a church to engage in the community around us in suffering with Jesus to bring shalom to all world. That is what our calling is. And I believe that the American church for too many generations has failed to engage in suffering because the church has been too introspective. Right? We create little social groups in our church and we stay within our church and we, we do everything with our church and um, sometimes we don't even know any non-Christians anymore because we've been so into the church. There is the element of confessional communities and creating community, but then go out and do something about it. Go and bring shalom to the world around you. God has put you in this community here in Aurora for a reason, to bring shalom to this world, to rule and reign over the broken creation and somehow along with Christ, to bring all things back to renewal of all things. Isn't that a beautiful image? God's desire is not just to experience forgiveness and freedom from sin, but to actively participate in the redemption plan of this world. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmen, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to show you one real quick quote. This is from an amazing uh, theologian, Haley Gordonson Jacobs. She wrote this really intense uh, 
It's very academic, so don't go read it because it'll, it'll, you know, I don't know. It hurts your brain to read it. But she wrote this amazing book. And at the very, very end of her book, she talk, it, the book is called Conform to the Image of His Son. And at the very end of her book, she makes this argument about glory and how, how it is God bestowing this rule and reign for us. And she says, what is the goal of salvation? For too long, scholars and laymen alike have myopically viewed justification and salvation as ends in themselves, whether for the benefit of the individual or of the incorporative body of Christ. The goal of salvation is believers' conformity to the Son of God, their participation in his rule over creation as God's eschatological family, that means like into eternity, and as renewed humanity. But only and always with the purpose of extending God's hand of mercy, love, and care to his wider creation. This was humanity's job in the beginning. It will be believers' responsibility and honor in the future. It is God's purpose in calling his people in the present. You see, what we do now ripples into eternity. It creates that trajectory into eternity. That is the power of what God's calling is for us as royal priests. And on this Pentecost Sunday, I hope we fully embrace this. We're called to be ambassadors of Christ. Agents of transformation in this terribly broken world. God has equipped us with spiritual gifts, talents, and resources to make a difference in the lives of others and bring glory to his name through the glory that he has given us. Let's take full advantage of the, of the incredible opportunities that lie before us. Amen. To God be the glory.